0: Hey, it's Jesse, and this is Blocked and Reported. So last week I interviewed Freddie DeBoer, one of my favorite lefty thinkers. It was a long interview, and we carved it up into two episodes. One, covering Freddie's new book, The Cult of Smart, was released for free. The other, which covered a bunch of other material, was released only for our paid subscribers. After everything went online, we realized that the first half of the second interview had some really important stuff that we wanted everyone to hear— particularly Freddie's discussion of his struggles with bipolar disorder, the extent to which he is convinced that his Twitter usage exacerbated things, and what it's like to have to rely on potentially life-saving medication that brings with it seriously frustrating side effects. So here it is, the first half of that second episode. We hope you enjoy it, and we hope that you'll consider becoming a premium subscriber to Blocked and Reported by heading over to patreon.com slash blockedandreported That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash blockchain Reported. The only reason we're able to do any of this is because of our patrons. We're up to almost 3,000 of them, and it's an amazing, brilliant, hilarious group. For $5 a month, you can join them, which will get you at least three extra episodes of Blockchain Reported per month that you just won't find anywhere else. If that's not doable at the moment, we completely understand uh, simply telling your friends about the podcast also helps us out a great deal. Either way, please enjoy this excerpt of my conversation with Freddie DeBoer, and please pre-order his book, The Cult of Smart, which is out early next month. All right, we're back with Freddie DeBoer. We're going to move on from his book to um, to, to some of your other writing and activities. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just gush for a minute. You've long been one of my favorite leftist writers. I think you have a way of just clarifying these weird online dynamics in in just in a great way. And I've gotten so much out of your essay. So I hope you don't mind if I just sort of pester you with questions about a few of the highlights. Go for it. There's probably no sort of piece of short form writing I've, I've sent to people as much in recent years as Planet of Cops. And I was really happy that you let me repost it in a couple of your other pieces last year. The, the article's basic argument, and, and I'll include in the show notes, is that even as there's been this justified uh, movement toward police reform and toward more forgiving styles of justice, th- there's this corner of the culture that seems to be expanding where there's there's less charity and less justice than ever, and, and people just sort of, you know, in some cases really having their lives ruined over half-baked accusations. What, what do you think has been the trajectory on that? Like, do you feel as negatively about that as you did when you wrote it?
1: So it's kind of hard to say because I'm not on Twitter and I <laughs> stay away from it. Twitter's the,
0: epi- Twitter's the epicenter of that. Yeah,
1: I stay away from it. Um, I have gotten back on Facebook to do a little book promo, but it's been very pleasant, um, partly because of how I've curated my Facebook feed. Um, but look, uh, you know, in criminal justice reform world, there is um, a concept of restorative justice, which says that uh, we don't throw people away. That we need to be creating systems of justice that are designed explicitly on how to b- bring people, even people who have done very bad things, um, back into the fold, back into uh, the um, the world of the righteous, right? That we want to be able to take people who have done bad things and say, okay, this person's been rehabilitated. It's very strange because, uh, you know, Twitter... Would seem the sort of the Twitter hive mind would seem to agree with the concepts that are are in the um, criminal justice reform movement and 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 in the sort of uh, restorative justice philosophy. But the whole basic premise of Twitter is that a person is either good or bad. Um, that that designation is existential and enduring and forever. And the purpose of every good person is to constantly be denigrating the bad regardless of the consequences and regardless of whether it's actually creating change in in the rest of the world. And that it's hard for me to imagine that that dynamic has changed on Twitter. It's probably intensified and, um, uh, yeah, I don't, it is a kind of mental, uh, gymnastics that I've never been able to wrap my head around how people can endorse the idea of restorative justice, um, in the abstract, but, um, think that everyone who's done anything wrong is irredeemable in the specific.
0: So earlier today, I was listening to an NPR show called Code Switch. And and without going into the details, it was or going into the details too much. It was about a Palestinian businessman in Minneapolis whose daughter had posted racial stuff on social media. He runs a catering business and a grocer. They've incurred millions of dollars of damage. They've had to shut down several locations, Nobody is accusing the guy himself, the owner, of anything wrong. It's his daughter did something when she was a teenager, and she was immediately fired when these racist social media posts were revealed. What struck me was these NPR hosts sort of taking it as a given that this guy, because of something his daughter did as a teenager, had incurred some moral debt that that he had to deal with. And to me, that was an example of this very sort of – um reactionary style of, of Twitter reasoning and moralizing leaking out in, into mainstream forums. Uh, do you see that happening or, or do you think it's still contained? No,
1: I, th- I think that it's definitely leaked, leaked out into the real world and uh, professional consequences, I think, are severe for uh, people who uh, – the professional consequences of what happens uh, on Twitter, I think, is severe. You know, I – uh, this might be a little too philosophical, but I, I sometimes think, I mean, one of my old saws is that in the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century in particular, we saw this evacuation of meaning um, from traditional structures of, uh, of value. So uh, things like religiosity uh even if the number of atheists didn't climb that high you know sort of explicit religiosity was ironized became um uncool you know people would identify as christians but their christian identity would have no impact on their day-to-day life um but also you know the undermining of you know mom's apple pie the american way uh the idea of the dignity of work uh getting a job at an office and having coming home to your uh, 2.3 children uh, you know, the two cards in the garage, all that stuff became undermined and ironized. And the things that people, uh, sort of used to take for granted as being the, uh, the arbiters of being successful, um, were no longer seen as being worthy of being taken seriously. So, sort of like the show Mad Men is sort of a, you know, takes us over the, the span of the sixties and demonstrates how, um, all that stuff began to be undermined. And in large measure, this stuff was undermined because it, it was bad, because, you know, uh, there was uh, a lot of racism bound up in that. There was uh, explicit xenophobia and hatred of the others, na- nationalism. There was uh, religious intolerance, intolerance towards, you know, sexual minorities or uh, towards Jews or towards uh, Muslims, etc. cetera. Um, and so these things were undermined for a reason, culminating in the sort of postmodern movement, which undermined the very... Sort of meaning of reality itself. The problem, from my perspective, with that is that um, nothing ever came up to replace the traditional structures of meaning, and so I've always felt that we live in a crisis of meaninglessness, where people don't feel like they have any models of how to be a fulfilled human being. And I would ascribe that a lot of that to you know the sixties and the undermining of traditional mores and traditional ways of, of meaning, so that. You can't anymore go to the go to the factory, come home and go to your bowling league, go to church every Sunday and feel, aha, I've solved human life. Um, and so one of the things that happens in a vacuum of meaning is that people search for it in places where they probably shouldn't. And I think one of the things that happens on a place like Twitter is that you are ascribed with an identity as a goodie or a baddie that there's people who are with the program of the dominant voices on that social media site. And for that, they are considered good people. And that laurel of being a good person is something that they can use to sort of create an identity around. And so I think part of the thing is that people are terrified of moral ambiguity, moral uncertainty, um, they, uh, they want moral simplicity and, uh, if someone can be redeemed, if it's possible to re- rehabilitate someone, then the categories of goody and baddie aren't fixed, right? And if I'm someone who considers myself a goodie and it, someone else can become a goodie after being a baddie, well, then that means that I could become a baddie one day. It's destabilizing. And so I think a lot of what is happening, um, uh, with this is just people are have literally invested their identities on this social network and are using it to define themselves as a a person and they'll never admit to it they'll tell you that it's just some you know minor uh unimportant social network that they don't that invested in but their behavior says otherwise
0: i think i went through a trajectory where like a lot of maybe uh white male liberals when I was like twenty or so, I was probably a little bit of an angry atheist, you know, some Dawkins and Carl Sagan and Sam Harris, but it's like you get a little older and you realize that, yes, there are the mega churches offering thundering denunciations of homosexuality, but also people really do need to feel like they're a part of something, and that that can be a church, like you said, a bowling league civic association, so I think. I mean, this is just a way of agreeing with you, but I think what worries me is people seeking out much more superficial and sort of illusory senses of meaning online that don't that don't really provide much sucker at the end of the day. Yeah, I
1: don't think I don't think that these people are happy. Um, I think that one of the things that powers the reason why Twitter is such a toxic place is because um, most of the people who use it are terribly unhappy people. I mean, I, I think that's just. That was my, you know, when I was on Twitter, that was always my observation that the people shouting the loudest were um, tended to be people who uh, had a very dark outlook and who seemed uh, not to love themselves very much. And of course, it's you know, dime store psychology. But uh, people who uh, don't view themselves as being worthy of being loved tend to channel that uh, in a projected way, and they tend to. Uh, Push negativity onto everybody else, so that the, they're inflicting the negativity that they themselves feel.
0: I, I was watching. I'm not even going to name the names, but just just one of the sort of fights or meltdowns that I I think you you maybe four or five years ago would have been involved in something like this. I, I feel like you wouldn't deny that because you fought with people on Twitter. Um, I, I was watching it, just watching this one leftist dude pummel this other sort of leftist dude and and get a huge amount of validation from it from in terms of likes and and chuckling replies, and I was just like. Any outsider watching this guy's behavior would say this person seems to be going through like a mental health crisis or just has a terrible personality. That difference between how it looks to someone outside the club and the internal validation you get within it I think is a big part of the story here.
1: Well, I think that um, – I mean when this is a question of, of mental health specifically, I can say from personal experience, um, people uh, enable – uh, mentally uh, behaviors that derive from mental illness on social media in a way that's deeply unhealthy. And they think that they're doing it like that. They're backing someone who they care about or that they're supporting a cause, but they will very often take what seems to me to be, uh, sort of clearly unhealthy behavior and they'll retweet it and like it and say, you go girl about it. Um, and I can tell you that because I can tell you from personal experience. Cause, you know, when I was on Twitter the last six months or so that I was on in 2017, I, I would frequently be tweeting in a period of, uh, of, uh, clinical mania, right? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I ended up, uh, after all that, you know, ended up in a mental hospital again and, uh, being, uh, diagnosed with uh, manic delusions again. And uh, there were times when I would tweet in that way. And I mean, obviously, uh, to a certain degree, I, I was grateful to the people who would support me when I would do that. And there were a lot of people because Twitter always has a lot of, you know, uh, people egging everyone on. But uh, what somebody needed to do was to say, you know, you seem unhinged. <laughs> you are, uh, you're tweeting at an incredible rate you are speaking in extreme hyperbole. Uh, you are, uh, uh, you're acting like, uh, you are, uh, invulnerable or you're otherwise being, um, um, irrationally exuberant in your behavior. No, this is not a healthy behavior, but that's not what you get. And I think that, I think that there are, are people on Twitter whose whole persona Has been developed from their untreated mental illness, and they get exactly the wrong kind of support uh, from that. When what they really need, what what true friendship would would do, would be to say, "You need to stop." And instead, they get um, validated, uh, and they get um, they get more and more incentive to uh, continue to behave that way. Let let me
0: this. Uh, Let me read this question exactly as I've written it because I I just want to be careful about this. So the way I wrote it was, the part of me that tries to be a careful social science writer knows that I can't just take the anecdata all around me and draw meaningful causal conclusions from it. And yet, I am absolutely positively convinced that Twitter is making people more anxious, more depressed, and in some cases sparking or seriously exacerbating mental illness. Do you think that's unfair or an oversimplification or, or is that about right?
1: No, 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 no. I think that's about right. And I um look, you only have to look at people's what they themselves say, right? Many of Twitter's most active users call it a hell site. Many of Twitter's most active users talk about how it's horrific. Many of Twitter's most active uh users refer to it as a place of pain, right? <laughs> Uh, and they they couch that in humor they pretend to be laughing about it you know they they, they try to uh, deflect it by embedding it in a humorous uh, sort of frame but um that's what they say right they themselves are saying that it's not a healthy place to be that it's in fact a place dominated by uh, particular kinds of unhealthy behavior um but they that doesn't compel them to change the behavior of using it re- repeatedly right like they don't I don't say okay, I call this a hell site. Why is it that I'm engaging on a hell site from the morning I wake up to the moment that I go uh, to sleep at night? You know, wh- why would I do that? That's an irrational behavior, but that's kind of beyond people, I guess.
0: So, so in, I mean, in, in your case, you've, you've written frankly about this, you have um bipolar disorder, and and how did that's that's the actual diagnosis, right? Yeah,
1: right. um, so. I was originally diagnosed with bipolar two because uh, at the time when I was twenty one, I had been suffering from intense depression. And so, uh, but um, I mean, the reason I ended up in the hospital was a manic manic thing. So yeah, when I was when I was uh, in my early twenties, I, uh, (laughs) I, uh, well, we don't need to get into all the details. I ended up in the hospital. I got a shot of Haldol uh, and a, a diagnosis as being um, manic depressive, as being as having bipolar, and then proceeded to spend um, the rest of my adult years not really dealing with it. I was on and off meds, but mostly off for you know uh, another uh, decade and a half after that.
0: And and what got you to a point where you could, you know, I, I I'm not. I don't have insights into your actual day-to-day life, but you have become a, a productive public intellectual despite having to, to fight this thing. How did you get there?
1: Well, um, one of the, the things that my, that my ways that my illness manifests stuff, I mean, it's not unusual for people who are manic to have periods of incredible productivity. Um, I have, you sometimes see referred to as loguria, um when I'm, when I'm manic, which is, you know, logaria, a uh, uh, intense desire to talk or to write. Um, and uh, I would bang out several thousand word pieces in 2000, in, t- several thousand word uh, pieces in, you know, 45 minutes um, was not unusual. And, uh, and again, like, you know, <sighs> bipolar mania is, um, uh, seductive in a certain sense. I mean, mine was always parent. It was always a uh, sort of, uh, uh, characteristic of it was always paranoia more than anything else, but, uh, it has a, there's a grandiosity that comes along with it that compels you to sort of see yourself in that moment as being like the, the most intense, most real version of yourself. And so, uh, and that combined with the ability to write when you're a grad student, I mean, I was a full-time grad student and also someone who was writing um, uh, thousands and thousands of words for my blog or for, you know, whoever, uh, you know, the times or the, the Washington post or the LA times or whoever it was at that particular time, the ability to produce that many words in a short span of time was, you know, to me felt like, Oh, this is healthy. This is good. But in fact, it was, um, you know, all aspects of, uh, it's a terribly unhealthy condition.
0: That that's a somewhat common like sentiment among people with, with severe mental illness is that like there's some aspect of it that feels like it it I don't know if benefit's the right word, but there's some aspect of it you almost don't want to give up, right? Because it's part of your identity and it's it's adaptive in certain narrow ways.
1: Different people have different Cycles with bipolar disorder. Um, there are people who, um, have what's called rapid cycling where they can literally move from depression to mania within a single day. I kind of have the opposite. I have very, very slow cycles. And one of the things that makes that unfortunate is that, um, it's like the old analogy of, you know, if you put a frog in, uh, in a, a bowl and then you gradually turn the temperature up, it will never, jo- it'll boil to death. It'll never jump out, you know, that, that old analogy. Uh, it's it's imperceptible. And so it's a sort of similar thing with me where I will be in a period between depression and mania for a long time. And that seems like being flat, like being like being normal. And so it was difficult for me, always difficult for me to sort of identify mania by the time that I had gotten into it. It happened so percept imperceptibly and gradually. Um, but, you know, then it all results in. I mean, genuine manic delusion,
0: you know? Um, So I imagining in the moment, this was far from the biggest thing going on for you, but, but during one of these periods when you were really struggling, the most public manifestation of it was you launched what you later said was an intentional false allegation against another writer named Malcolm Harris. I'll include a link to your apology. We don't even need to uh, reiterate what the accusation was, but I, you know, I am curious, like in that moment, what was going on with you that caused you to do that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this is, it's difficult because if I talk about, um, how sorry I am and the, uh, things that I've done in my life to try to correct my life after that happened, people think that I am feeling sorry for myself. If I don't talk about that stuff, they think that I'm brushing by it. Um, but I will say, yeah, um, at the time, he, so he had tweeted a list of people who were perceived as being critics of Antifa and that, and, and that we should be, I was on that list and that we should be, uh, kicked out of polite society for it. In that, I mean, he did not write it. In that mental state, I thought that he had written it and I saw red and I, uh, in that state, wanted to destroy, and that seemed like the most powerful volley that I could throw at the time. Uh, it was a, a, just a pure uh, impulse to uh, to fight back and to uh, to try to uh, hurt someone as badly as I as I felt I could.
0: I, I've, yeah, I mean, I haven't been through exactly that, but just that feeling of like someone who is another human being who might not even have politics that different from your own, that, that feeling like you want to crush them to just best them to publicly humiliate them. You know, that, that's something I hardly ever feel anywhere except on Twitter. It's just like the the machine is designed to, it feels like it's designed to generate feelings and outcomes like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's difficult because no matter what I say, People think that I am shirking responsibility for what happened. I take individual and personal responsibility for what happened. I'm culpable of it regardless of my man, my mindset. And I, I accept and assert that I'm responsible and should be judged as responsible for it. Um, it is also the case that, you know, I was in the hospital two days later and I told the, uh, the shrink there that I was being pursued by the railroad police, right? Right it's difficult for me to separate uh, my motives at the time from what was a diagnosed as a delusional mindset. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. And I, and I think from your point of view, I mean, your apology is written in a way where you're clear. I knew this was false at the time. I also am a bleeding heart liberal, especially having had people close to me with mental health problems that frankly made them very difficult to interact with. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's like a it's a binary thing in terms of personal responsibility, right? Like, what does that even, Who's I don't know. We could get into we could devolve into a bizarre stoned freshman conversation about free will, but I just think the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. Um. Well, okay. I, last thing on the mental health kick before we before we move on to sort of broader online leftism themes, but but you know, if someone twenty two year old just graduating from school who wants to be a writer or an activist or, you know, someone in your orbit, your world is diagnosed with this condition. What, what would you tell them about how to best manage it? What do you think, what do you wish you knew back then?
1: Um, I, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is the thing that people are least likely to accept it, to hear it from someone else, which is that you can't just tough your way through it. Um, I mean, my, my problem was, I mean, I, you know, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the first time that I went to the hospital, I was, I was really, uh, uh, not lucid. Um, and yet even that and, and, a, a hospital stay, uh, and you know, uh, the medications I was on, that was not sufficient to make me understand that it, I could not, um, just sort of tough it out and take personal responsibility and control for my own actions, despite my illness, whatever. Um, so, you know, um, my, you know, my advice can only be to go on meds. Um, it, it sucks. Uh, it's, it's ruining my life as we speak. Uh, these, these meds, I, I cannot begin to, uh, express all the terrible side effects and how they, um, sort of seem to conspire against you. But, um, you ne- I think that for all of their abundant flaws, I think that you need to avail yourself of modern psychiatric medicine and you need to be medicated because, um, the part of your brain that you think is going to be, uh, controlling your behavior and being tough and, and, and sort of taking command of everything is as subject to the delusions as anything else is, as anyone else is, right? Like that part of your brain will also be deluded. And until you won't actually be able to control your own behavior. So I, I do think you have to be on meds. Uh, and, uh, it's take, trust me, it took me a long time to come around to that. And. Um, you know, I've been on meds going on three years now. Um, prior to that, I was never on meds longer than like nine months at a time because I found the, the side effects so, um, debilitating. Uh, and so I totally understand not wanting to be on meds, but I think that that's the only real solution.
0: What, What are the side effects you are most worried that will deter people and cause them to toss out their meds?
1: Just speaking about my own stuff right now. I mean, look, um, I am fifty pounds heavier than I was today. I went to the hospital. Uh, I was one seventy seven uh, the day I went to the hospital, and within three months, I was two thirty five. Um, but the big ones for me, the biggest ones for me, are the cognitive side effects uh, with the antipsychotics. And I mean, I, you know, I, I got fired from this job at Brooklyn College, and um, you know, I. Some of the common complaints about my performance that I would lacked focus and my memory was bad are directly things that are uh, known to be side effects of of uh, atyp- atypical antipsychotics or second generation antipsychotics and uh you know, I lose time uh like I will blink out for a minute, you know it's a split second, but uh I will suddenly like be like, whoa, I was just gone for a second, just wasn't there. Um I'll open a tab on my browser uh, to look at something and by the time I have actually opened the tab I've forgotten what it was that I wanted to wanted to browse to uh, and just a complete inability to focus like in a meeting and knowing that like being focused in that meeting was super important for my job and just literally not being able to do it uh, it's it's very difficult
0: right so so the medication that's sort of keeping you safe and and you know, potentially out of the hospital is also just fucking up your ability to do your job day to day.
1: Yeah, uh, it's really debilitating. And um, my old bosses, the old provost and associate provost that I used to have at Brooklyn College um, kind of had my back and was, were giving me reasonable accommodation. And then new bosses came in and they did not.
0: Okay, so it's me again, Jesse alone. Uh, on that cheerful note, that's it. That's the free bit of the conversation we're releasing. I hope you enjoyed it. There's about 25 more minutes of conversation on our Patreon page. Again, that's patreon.com slash blockchainreported. During that part of the conversation, Freddie and I discuss his thoughts on the Democratic Socialists of America, back channels in journalism and academia, what Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan reveal about the present moment, uh, the so-called professional managerial class, and, and a lot of other stuff too. I thought it was a great conversation, so I hope you'll consider subscribing. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with our standard format consisting mostly of Katie insulting me very soon.